Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. So it appears that the soon-to-be lame duck attorney general, William Barr, is on to the Immigration Review podcast and doesn't like it because he decided to issue a 36-page, single-spaced, 27-footnote decision on the persecutor bar on Thursday. Well, joke's on you, attorney general, because I read it. The persecutor bar and more on this week's Immigration Review, brought to you by soon-to-be official sponsor of Immigration Review, President Joe Biden. Our people are talking to each other and are working out the sponsorship details as we speak. On to the show. First is Matter of Negusi, published by the Attorney General. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this is a 36-page, single-spaced, 27-footnote decision from the Attorney General on the persecutor bar to asylum, withholding of removal, and other forms of relief under immigration law. There's a lot here, so if anyone wants to skip the rest, here's the two holdings. First, the bar to eligibility for asylum and withholding of removal based on the persecution of others does not include an exception for coercion or duress. Two, DHS does not have an evidentiary burden to show that the persecutor bar applies. Quote, if evidence in the record indicates the persecutor bar may apply, the applicant bears the burden of proving by a preponderance of the evidence that it does not, end quote. Okay, immigration law bars from asylum, withholding, and other forms of relief, any non-citizen who has, quote, ordered, incited, assisted, or otherwise participated in the persecution of any person on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. Such non-citizens are only potentially eligible for deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture. Now, Mr. Negusi, like all Eritrean males at the time, was forced into the Eritrean army. He was tortured himself, forced into becoming a military prison guard, and in that capacity, guarded prisoners as they themselves were persecuted and tortured, some to death. 
He credibly claimed in immigration court that he only did so because he was a prisoner himself, and that he actually helped some prisoners that he guarded. He eventually escaped to the U.S. in a shipping container. Incredible world. An immigration judge found that the persecutor bar precluded him from everything except deferral of removal under the cat, and then granted deferral. So Mr. Ngozi gets to stay in the U.S., but in the most limited of immigration statuses. Mr. Ngozi appealed, the BIA affirmed, as did the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, but then the Supreme Court reversed and remanded. The Supreme Court, according to the Attorney General, noted that the BIA did not consider whether or not there was a duress exception to the persecutor bar, and that immigration law is silent as to whether there is a duress exception, making immigration law ambiguous on the issue, which, under administrative law principles, means that the BIA needed to decide the issue in the first instance. So the BIA did just that in 2018, holding in a published decision that yes indeed, there is a duress exception to the persecutor bar. The BIA crafted a five-part test, and then found that Mr. Ngozi actually failed that test, meaning that he remained only eligible for deferral of removal under the CAT, which again he was granted. In this decision, Attorney General Barr disagreed, as he has the legal authority to do. He looked at, quote, the persecutor Barr's statutory context and history, end quote, and the fact that Congress did not include a duress exception in the statute itself and has been clear in other provisions of immigration law where voluntariness applies. According to the Attorney General, the persecutor bar therefore has no duress exception, and, quote, contemplates the possibility that someone can be both a persecutor and a subject of persecution, end quote. The Attorney General went on for about 25 pages explaining why, but that's the gist of it. Attorney General Barr also held that DHS does not have a prima facie evidentiary burden on the issue, and that rather, quote, while the immigration judge must determine whether the evidence indicates that the persecutor bar may apply, and thus whether the alien bears the burden of proving its inapplicability, that determination is an evidentiary one that does not stem from any burden on DHS, end quote. Is Mr. Ngozi's legal saga finally over? Only time will tell. Here are some more quotes and observations. Quite the detailed decision from Attorney General Barr, and, while it's not helpful to non-citizens, it's probably mandatory reading if the history of the persecutor bar is ever at issue in your case, or if you're making arguments based on the 1967 Refugee Protocol or the U.S.'s treaty obligations related to asylum. That being said, here's a pretty nice quote from the Attorney General for Eritrean asylum seekers. Quote, The parties do not dispute that prisoners in the Eritrean prison were being persecuted on account of protected grounds under the INA. End quote. Use it. Moving on, for practitioners who face an immigration judge or DHS trial attorney seeking to expand this decision in any way, here's your quote against it, according to the Attorney General. Quote, the sole question is whether to infer an exception to the persecutor bar for acts performed under coercion or duress, end quote. Anything else from this decision, besides the evidentiary burden issue, is dicta. And that's important, because the Attorney General indeed engages in about a page of dicta, listing other contexts in which he thinks a duress exception should not apply. But it's just dicta. The Attorney General also quotes and agrees with Justices Scalia and Alito recognizing that IJs, quote, 
faced the overwhelming task of attempting to recreate by a limited number of witnesses speaking through, often poor quality, translation, events that took place years ago in foreign, usually impoverished countries, end quote, and that there is, quote, already inherently high risk of error in immigration proceedings, end quote. Maybe so. And it's certainly a quote I'll be using in my BIA and circuit appeals. Next, and for those keeping score, and at a minimum, after this decision, there is now not a duress exception to either the persecutor bar or the material support of terrorism in admissibility provisions in immigration court. However, in a footnote, the Attorney General notes that DHS actually has officially created a duress exception to the material support of terrorism bar that only DHS, and seemingly not the immigration courts, can apply. The Attorney General provides URL links in the footnote, which may assist practitioners in their attempts to actually apply to DHS for such waivers and exceptions. Finally, and while I'm not familiar with the case, it seems based on the Attorney General's distinguishing footnotes that the First Circuit's case last year in Alvarado v. Whitaker may provide arguments against this decision. So, First Circuit practitioners and everyone else, check out Alvarado if your client has a persecutor bar issue. It may be your final white night. And that is Matter of Negusi. Going to the Third Circuit, we have Khan v. Attorney General of the U.S., published on November 3, 2020. This case, like some of the cases discussed last week, is about the immigration consequences of a state's changes to how it treats the possession of marijuana an issue that's probably going to come up more and more over the next couple of years. Mr. Khan became a lawful permanent resident in 2000, but pled guilty in 2006 to having violated Connecticut General Statute 21A-279C for possession of less than half ounce of marijuana. That conviction didn't make him removable because it entailed less than 30 grams of marijuana, but then in 2010, he was convicted of two counts of larceny, an immigration judge deemed those two convictions to be separate CIMTs, not arising out of a single scheme of conduct, that therefore made him removable under INA Section 237A2AI, and Mr. Khan applied for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA, which would enable him to keep his green card. LPR cancellation, unlike non-LPR cancellation, is a fairly straightforward form of immigration relief for LPRs, but requires, among other things, that the LPR have been an LPR for five years, and that he held any immigration status, which can include the LPR status itself, for a total of seven years. But here's the thing. The accumulation of years stops under immigration law when again among other things, the non-citizen commits an offense described in Section 212A2, which includes drug possession. So Mr. Khan is out of luck, right? Because he got the drug possession conviction in 2006, only six years and not seven years after becoming an LPR. Well, maybe not, because Connecticut decriminalized possession of marijuana and Mr. Khan's conduct in 2011, and then upon his application, vacated his conviction entirely. The IJ and then the BIA said it didn't matter. Mr. Khan committed the offense in 2006, and therefore the clock for LPR cancellation stopped on that date, meaning that he could not accrue the seven years in lawful immigration status required to obtain LPR cancellation. 
The Third Circuit agreed with the IJ and the BIA, based on the text of the stop-time statute. Relying in part on the Supreme Court's Barton v. Barr decision early last term, the Third Circuit narrowed the issue to, quote, two questions. One, did the petitioner commit one of the offenses identified in Section 212A2 before accruing seven years continuous residence? And two, was the petitioner rendered inadmissible under Section 212A2 as a result of that offense? End quote. The Third Circuit held that the answer to both questions was yes in 2006. And so, the seven-year clock stopped at that point, one year short. That the conviction was later decriminalized and vacated is not relevant. This is particularly so because the stop-time rule speaks to the commission, and not necessarily conviction, of an offense, which therefore, quote, focuses upon the subject's conduct and is properly understood to connote historical events, end quote. Mr. Khan, therefore, is ineligible for LPR cancellation of removal. But here's a bit more. Just a heads up. Although it wasn't at issue in this case because neither Mr. Khan's removability nor his eligibility for cancellation relief hinged on the drug conviction, again, because mere commission of the offense sufficed for the stop-time rule, whether the state of Connecticut's vacature of his conviction has any effect under immigration law after the Attorney General's decision last year in matter of Thomas and Thompson is a complicated legal issue that would have had to be researched if indeed the mere commission of an offense did not suffice and a conviction was necessary. That would have put the vacated nature of Mr. Khan's conviction at issue in this case, meaning that matter of Thomas and Thompson would have been the governing decision for whether the vacated conviction had any effect under immigration law. I don't believe matter of Thomas and Thompson has been challenged in the circuits yet, but I'm sure it will soon. And second... The Third Circuit noted that following the Supreme Court's decision last term in Barton v. Barr, Mr. Khan's conduct, which satisfies only the inadmissibility provision of drug possession at INA Section 212 and not any removability at Section 237, nevertheless prevents him from receiving LPR cancellation, even though Mr. Khan, as an LPR, and except in very limited circumstances, cannot be, quote, rendered inadmissible, end quote. Now, all of that's a pretty complicated issue that Barton v. Barr conclusively decided, so I won't get into it. But if you want to learn a bit more, it's discussed way back in episode one of the podcast. And that is Khan, the Attorney General of the U.S. Rounding out the week, we've got Swate Oriana v. Barr, published by the Fifth Circuit on November 4th, 2020. This case is about adverse credibility, particular social groups, and motions to remand. Ms. Swate Oriana is from Honduras. She claims she was married to a drug trafficker who was murdered by suspected drug traffickers, and in 2010 claimed asylum in the United States, out of fear of those same drug traffickers. She was denied asylum and physically removed back to Honduras in 2011. She claims that upon her removal to Honduras, the trafficker who killed her husband was killed by a more powerful gang leader, who then tried to recruit Miss Suate Oriana. She refused, and so he sent a hitman to kill her, but instead of doing it, the hitman warned her that if she didn't leave Honduras, he'd fulfill the order. She fled to the U.S. in 2014. The gang leader who sent the hitman was then killed in 2016. Detained at the border, Miss Suate Oriana was given a reasonable fear interview. 
she was given a reasonable fear interview rather than a credible fear interview because, as someone who had once been removed, she was ineligible for asylum and only potentially eligible for withholding and cat protection, and therefore needed to pass the higher, reasonable fear standard. And she passed it. But at the merits hearing, she was deemed not credible by an immigration judge, and the BIA affirmed. Reviewing the adverse credibility finding under the deferential substantial evidence standard, the Fifth Circuit affirmed as well. The Fifth primarily discussed significant unexplained inconsistencies in her story. Notably, the Fifth Circuit also held that the purported particular social group, quote, Honduran women who have been targeted for and resisted gang recruitment after the murder of a gang associated partner, end quote, is not recognized under immigration law. The Fifth also held that the country condition evidence did not mandate reversal as to the BIA's denial of torture protection. Finally, the Fifth Circuit affirmed the BIA's denial of Ms. Suate Oriana's motion to remand to consider new evidence. The Fifth Circuit affirmed the BIA's finding that remand wasn't necessary because the new proffered evidence wasn't material to her case, stating that, quote, When determining materiality, the board should consider whether the new evidence would likely change the result in the case, end quote. Ms. Suate Oriana's proffered evidence did not meet that standard. So, Ms. Suate Oriana lost her withholding and torture convention claims. And that is Suate Oriana v. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.